We are walking through a series in the book of Matthew. We're going line by line. We're in chapter 10. We've been asking some tough questions, and Jesus has been giving us some tough text. We asked, is it God's will to heal everyone a number of weeks ago? And we really wrestled with that. We looked at the cost of discipleship and what it really means to follow Jesus, giving up some of the things we might think we should do, like even the person who said, let me first go bury my father. He said, let the dead bury their own dead. Looking at our own lives and the things that we always put into our lives that we should empty out if we're really going to be serious about following Jesus. Last week, we looked at sending out of the 12. Tonight, we're going to look at some more difficult passages that Jesus puts out, that he brings not peace, but a sword. What does that mean? Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at Matthew 11 and then move into Matthew 12. And I'm going to have uh, Morgan do Matthew 12 on the Sabbath because that's a big thing that he's been studying and really yearns to teach others about. Um, and you'll remember the first part of Matthew 11 we covered earlier when we did the story of John the Baptist. So as I said last week, we started with the sending out of the 12 disciples. And you know, before we make fun of too many other people, we sent out a little card to each of you and asked you to write down the names of the 12 disciples to see how we're doing. Apparently there's some new disciples that weren't in the list. Here are some of them, some of the new disciples. Mark, not a disciple. Luke is not a disciple, okay? Barnabas is not a disciple. Uh, Barabbas, uh, he's... Actually, he'd be the furthest thing. He's the guy that got picked to go free, if you remember, while Jesus uh, got to go to the cross. Uh, some other not disciples, Paul, Timothy, Titus, Micah. Make it an appearance from the Old Testament, Micah. And, uh, and Apollos. Apollos, not a disciple. Now, these guys, of course, become part of the, some of them are part of the early church, not Barabbas. He, he doesn't want to join the church. But uh, those were, if you're wondering what the correct ones are, uh, here's the correct ones that are taken right from the text in Matthew. It is fair that we pointed out that some of the other Gospels have different names for some of them, so that was part of the confusion. But Simon, later Peter, Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, of course, we're reading through that Gospel that's attributed to him, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, who's different than Simon Peter, and Judas Iscariot. Okay? I said that the people who got them the most, like I got the most right, got a prize. So I'm true to my word. Let my yes be my yes. We studied that. So we had two people come in like second place. Second place. One of them was Morgan, who's not here because he's got a wedding tonight. So it's good to know that our seminary intern got at least 10 out of the 12. <laughs> so we're going to reserve a $5 Starbucks card for him. The person who came in tied at 10 also was uh, Ryan. Ryan on the radio. So it's good to know that our worship leader and our seminary intern are both at least got 10 out of 12. But kind of like in the who's smarter than a fifth grader, somebody beat both of them out and had 11. So they got a $10 gift certificate, and that was Brittany. So who's smarter than a seminary intern and a worship leader? Brittany. All right. Let's move forward in the book of Matthew. Last week, we ended with these words in chapter 10. Jesus was reminding his disciples about the persecution that was coming. Remember, he was sending out the 12 and telling them, go into the towns. 
And if they receive you, great. And if they don't, shake the dust off your feet and move on. And then he starts to foreshadow the greater persecution that's coming, not just what they're going to meet from town to town. Yes, some people in town were going to reject him. But Jesus was also preparing them for a bigger rejection. And he was telling them, don't be surprised. Here's the words we read last time. A student is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the student to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, how much more the members of his household? Jesus clearly alluding to the fact that he, right even in the Gospels it's recorded, was called Satan or associated with Satan for the things that he did. And here Jesus was saying, look, if they said that of me, they're going to say it of you. We're going to press forward right now and look at more passages about this persecution and some tough words from Jesus. Let's pray to move in. Lord, open your word to us right now. Your words are tough. Help us to struggle with them and take them seriously in that context. Help us to see the wisdom of these words. Pray this in your name. Amen. So continuing forward about persecution, here's what Jesus says. So do not be afraid of them, the people who will persecute you. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both the soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. And even the very hairs on your head are all numbered. So do not be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Okay. We know what the ending part means. God knows what's going to happen. In fact, if you read these words that I read in the NIV here, where it says that the sparrows couldn't fall if it wasn't the will of your father, that word actually is closer and translated to the knowledge of your father. So he knows what's going on. He understands. He sees. And if he could watch and know that birds, he's going to say, you're worth so much more. Remember, Jesus likes the bird analogy. Remember, we've seen this before? Like, consider the birds of the air. Same kind of thing. He's reminding people of that kind of teaching. So if God feeds them, if God knows their fate, he's got you covered. What about this first part, though? There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. Did Jesus suddenly turn into the Riddler? Like, what's, what's that about? What does that mean? Yeah. Well, I mean, in previous parts of the book and also in previous parts of his life, he's always telling people, hey, don't tell everybody about this. But yeah, I healed you, but don't tell everybody. And like, also, there's lots of times where he explains things to disciples individually or like just his followers individually. And like, so this is what this really meant. And so it could at least be referred to that. Like, hey, at this point, like, once you're being sent out, you can share everything. Like, it doesn't matter at that point. Okay, certainly when you connect it to that second sentence, what I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight, what is whispered in your ear, shout from the roofs. Like we've got that kind of imagery still in our language, right? Shout it from the rooftops. Like look where it came from. So yeah, I think you can connect those two. That there is a sense that what is going on is going to be made known. Yeah, Joseph. I guess we could also look in the other way like, Corruption in your heart will be made known through persecution, or if it's the other way around, the goodness in your heart will be made known through persecution. Yeah. You know, actually, both of those are dead on. 
Jesus is saying two things, and he's, you can take them both ways, and actually both of them are going to turn out to be true. One is that it is true that what Jesus is slowly letting out, that Philip's alluding to, is going to eventually be made known to everyone. But also there's this sense that what's going on in our hearts, what's secret, what is not known, is going to be made known. These words should kind of stop us in our track a little bit. Because there is a sense throughout Scripture that at the judgment, which he's kind of also alluding to, everything will be made known. Like, think about that for a moment. Is that the way we like it? We like it the other way around. Like, we think, eh, it's good that God forgave me. God knows everything, but I wouldn't want anybody else to know what he's forgiving me for. There's an implication here that everything is going to be made known. He's already talked to the disciples. You remember earlier in the passage from last week, we talked about this idea He's already kind of alluding to the disciples that they will have power to judge along with him too. And we find that in 1 Corinthians, that text. So here he's giving this double kind of, both of them have that meaning. And for me, when I look at that, I think, wow, that's a tough thing. But he's saying, don't worry. Now, who is he saying we should fear? Be afraid of the one who can destroy the body and the soul. Obviously, that's God. That's who he's telling us to worry about. Not just us. Specifically, he's talking to people who are in times of persecution right now. You people are going to be worried about the people who are persecuting you. Worry more about God. You know that fear we contrast. Fear God in the good way versus fear man in the bad way. He's contrasting two types of fear right next to each other. It's natural to fear, but he's showing us that really what we should Fear in the biblical sense of fear is the one who really has power. These people can only kill you. And that's not the end of us, as we find out as the story unfolds. So now, let's talk about what he's really saying, and it gets tougher. Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. What do you think of that? Is that right? If you disown Jesus, actually, let me say it clearly, when he's talking, he's saying, my father, if you disown me. This is one of those points in Matthew where we read it in a post-resurrection, living in the church, then go, yeah, it's Jesus. To Matthew's hearers, to the people listening to Jesus when he says this, this is a pretty shocking statement. Jesus is identifying himself as the deity. He's saying that I'm the gatekeeper. You deny me and God will deny you. My father. He usually uses our father, heavenly father. He's saying my father. He's putting himself right in the center. If you're a theologian, you say this is a high Christology right now. That Jesus is putting himself right smack in the middle of it and identifying himself. What do you think of this phrase though? Give us pause. Well, I don't feel like it can be taken as exactly literal saying like, I mean, like Peter disowned him. Um, and so it feels like to me more like a, just a general, like if someone is disowning me, like, then yeah, I'll be disowning them. But it's not like an action consequence like specific for one thing. I don't know if that sense. Okay, anyone else? I think he's just talking about total disownment, not necessarily a mistake like Peter did. When we all make the mistake of disowning Christ when we sin, but 
to totally disown Christ means to say, I will have nothing to do with God, I will have nothing to do with Christ. Okay. And what does before men mean, like? That means if you do it in front of women, it doesn't count. No. <laughs> I'm saying disown in front of people in public to me doesn't suggest like an inward heart, like I'm just angry at God right now or whatever it is, or turning my back. I, like it's just interesting to me that he puts it out in public. Like if you're ashamed, it's almost like speaking to those who like, or I don't know, like it's. Yeah, it should trouble us a little bit more than it is. Uh, it sounds like to me he's contradicting the theology that once saved, always saved. Could be. Some people have taken that, by the way, that what we've taken as a theology of saying once you're in, you're in forever, um, that that probably could be affected by this verse. That's true. It's a fair observation. You guys bring up Peter, right? Like, Peter's our safe, safe harbor, isn't he? Like, you go, yeah, Peter denied him. And, and what? Like, do we, well, first of all, let's look at the story for a second with Peter. And let's look at the context here. Remember, the reason we're reading this stuff line by line is because so many people in the church take things out of context, they come up with their own theologies. He is talking about persecution. So that's what before men means. He's actually saying in the midst of it is, if in your time of persecution you disown me before men, it seems to flow right into that. Okay? So there's a context in which he's speaking. Now, does it apply more generally? Sure. But that's why he's talking about if you disown me before men, I'll disown you, or God will disown you. But isn't that what Peter did? Why did Peter deny Jesus? What was going on? Jesus was on trial. Peter's out in the courtyard. People are questioning him like, hey, weren't you one of the people that hung around with that Jesus? What, Peter just didn't want to be recognized? He didn't want the fame? He didn't want TMZ following around? I mean, why did he deny Jesus? It was because he was worried that he'd be next on trial. He didn't even have to face like the lion's den type of persecution that some of these other guys are going to face. He's just facing the potential inquiry of being on trial. And he's denying Jesus, not once, but three times. Shouldn't that disqualify him? Sounds like you're saying no, because it's really a total disownment, not just one single time. And I think that's a fair reading of this. That ultimately what really discredits us, what prevents us from being owned by the Father is a total rejection of Christ. But you got to notice that it puts Christ right in the center as, as the gatekeeper. So right here we have this clear identification that I am the way. You gotta, you've got to acknowledge me so that the Father will acknowledge you. So there's a tough saying. How about this? Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace, but a sword. You know, one of the Jewish understandings of Messiah was that he was going to come and usher in a period of peace. What did the angels sing on Christmas when Jesus showed up? Hark the herald angels sing. They actually, I think that's quoted right in here. They actually said peace on earth, didn't they? Like, if you go back to our celebrations of the Christmas story, it seems like everybody's celebrating peace. The Jewish understanding of Messiah was that he was going to come and usher in peace. What about Jesus? Blessed are the peacemakers. We're supposed to be peacemakers. What do you make of a statement where Jesus says, don't think that I have come to bring peace, but a sword. Here's the exact verse. Do not suppose I've come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. 
For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Jesus being a little tough there, isn't he? What's he saying again about the importance of Jesus? Yeah. That uh, religion is going to bring a division amongst households. Like some people will follow and some won't. Like they'll turn households against each other. Yeah. By the way, this part here about man against his father, daughter against her mother, he's quoting from Micah, that disciple Micah. <laughs> he's, he's quoting from Micah, one of the messianic prophecies about who the Messiah would be. He's saying metaphorically, because Luke uses a similar word. Instead of sword, he says, I've come to bring division. If you follow Jesus, again, this is a tough passage about persecution. It's a tough passage about the cost of discipleship, about choosing him above all else. It will bring division. It may bring division, but he's saying expect it. It's the kind of sword that divides a family against itself. Because some will be believers, he says, a man's enemies will be the members of his own household because of your belief. You know, when we read words like this, I wonder, how many of us have ever experienced this before? How many of us have ever experienced the kind of persecution where we're wondering how we fear men versus fearing God? And I'm glad that we don't. I'm not asking for it. But Jesus was saying that following me is going to lead to these things. And sometimes I ask, I wonder how much we're really following because we don't see a lot of these things where people have to turn their entire households upside down to proclaim that they believe in Christ that following him just like the person who said let me first go do something like bury my father he's like let him bury himself yeah I'm just thinking like I, I understand that like him bringing division um I mean, you brought up because the angels coming saying like he's peace on earth you know like how do we like mesh those together, like I said, like Jesus is saying, I did not come to bring peace. So I could be okay with him saying, yes, I came to bring like, peace eventually, like way down the road, you know, like, but division will happen first and will be most of what you'll see. But like, he's making the statement, are we just sort of ignoring, saying he's just trying to make a point? And that's... No, I think that is what he's saying, exactly what you said. It's the language that you have to understand that Jesus' way of speaking, which is a very first century way of speaking, is to say, not this, but that. But really, the way it was properly understood was not just this, but more of this first, okay? We have a more like an on-off, like, don't think I've come to bring peace, I've come to bring division. We think that means he's not coming to bring peace. That's what we would read. But they would understand that in that not X, but Y kind of thing that we see throughout the book of Matthew. It's the way of writing. It's saying, it's almost like you insert, I have not only to bring this, but this more. And the way to understand that is, I have not come to bring peace now. In other words, the kingdom of God is advancing forcefully. Remember those words? And forceful men lay hold of it. And there are other parts of scripture that we see that, yes, this is going to happen. It's already happening, but it's not yet fulfilled. The whole kingdom is like that. A concept of already, but not yet. And part of it is, Yes, I have come to bring peace, but we all know that ultimate peace will never happen until the kingdom is fulfilled. Until we have peace with God fully. Until there's no more sin, no more sorrow. And he's alluding to the fact that first will come some very tough division before we get to that level of peace. He's correcting their understanding. You have the scriptures, he's saying them, and you thought the Messiah was coming to just to bring peace and usher in a period of peace. 
But first will come these words from Micah, and then peace will come along with it in a more fulfilled sense. It's tough, because when I stumble on these words, you think like, so Jesus, who's supposed to be for people and loving, is saying that families might turn against themselves? Sure. He goes on and says, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. The worthy word is not deserving of me. You don't deserve me if you love your mother or father more than me. Anyone who loves a son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. you got to think that when Jesus is making a speech, there's like five people left at this point, you know? Like everybody else is like, I'm going home. Because he just keeps adding more and more of these tough requirements about what it means. Now suddenly saying to a guy, hey, you let the dead bury their own dead, seems like a small, insignificant comment compared to the level that he's asking his followers to take on. That not even love for family should come before him. I don't think anybody in this room that I know has like their own children know what a love for son or daughter must be. But that must be so tough to say to somebody, not even that comes before me. What about this language about taking up the cross? It's either alluding to the fact that he will take up the cross, but all of the people in the first century knew what Roman crucifixion looked like. Everyone knew that the method of their torture was to make you carry your own death instrument and then be crucified upon it. And he's making that illusion, yes, it's prophetic, but he's saying to them something they would already know. This is how far you'd have to go. This is how tough it would be. You find your life, you'll lose it. And whoever loses your life for me will find it. He's contrasting two types of life. You lose your life here, you'll find it in the next one. And vice versa. Like I said, there are not many people probably still standing around going, I like this guy. You know? This guy's the best guy we've heard for a while. We should come back tomorrow. Yeah. The whole idea of taking the cross, like, or taking his cross, like, uh, what is he actually saying? Like, hey, you should set yourself up so that you can die? Like, or, like, I, I don't understand. Like, what does taking his cross, like, actually mean? Or what does that look like? Or Yeah, I think it partly is sacrifice, like bearing the instrument of your own sacrifice. But see, we read cross as sacrifice because we know how the story ends. More likely, what people are listening to right there is the extent to which you would go to follow him, even if it means that you would bear the own instrument of your suffering to do it. Our equivalent would be dying for a cause, right? You have to be willing to take your cross and, and, and on the path that would lead to your death for my sake. Well, I mean, maybe I'm just thinking like your own desires, your own passion, your own ideas for your life or where it's going, whatever, like die to self. Yeah, I mean, look, when you, the concept of anyone who takes up his cross, that meant like you were on the road to death. Those are people who took up their cross. Like when you picked up the cross, you were on the last march. You'd have to go to that level of being ready to pick up your cross and following me. That's the people who are worthy of me, who would go to that length. He's asking for a very high standard of commitment. I think we've watered down the standard significantly. We've watered down the standard to, well, you've heard it, like fire insurance, right? It's kind of the standard we've watered it down to. And we've confused salvation with this type of 
discipleship, with this type of following him, putting everything aside for Christ, including family. Yeah. I mean, it pretty clearly says, like, anyone who finds his life will lose it. You know, like, if you're not doing all these things, you're not worthy of me. It's like, maybe, like, God and Jesus will let us in, even though we're not worthy of it, but that doesn't work. Yeah. I've been struggling with how a lot of Christians will say, I'm going to heaven. I'm saved because I'm going to heaven. I don't really like that because I feel like it takes away from, like, how we're supposed to live. Like, it's like we're not... We're not supposed to try to just attain like a, the goodies at the end. I feel like like this is like a call to live as Christ. It's more of a sacrifice because it's like, oh, well, we're not in that insurance like you're talking about. We're not just trying to get the insurance so that we can go to heaven and be safe because we're supposed to live unsafe in a sense. Who wants to do that? Anybody want to do that? Raise your hand. Let's be honest, who wants to live in this kind of world that he's describing, where families are divided, where you literally will know the fear of death and that you're supposed to somehow have the reverent fear of God over the reverent fear of dying at the hands of your accusers? How many people want that? Anyone? You know, he presumed that many of us would live in this place. And it's not because of the time we live in, because we know that other parts of the world, this is happening right now. We're just not there. Now, the question is, does that mean we should go rush and jump into it? Is that the best way to live for Christ? Is to go seek out suffering and persecution? Should we be doing that? I don't know that he's saying that either. But given the fact that we don't have to worry about that today, it seems that we're just okay not worrying about any of it. Like We should be thankful, and I think most of us are when we think about it, that we're not being killed for our faith that we're not being rejected when we preach to somebody to the point where they arrest you and throw you into a place where it might cause your death. But it seems that having escaped that, we just are content to just continue living. And we've watered down a lot of our presentations of the gospel into, look, believe in Jesus and you're in. Which is true. I totally affirm that. Don't hear me saying anything other than that. But is that the end of the story? What about all the stuff he was talking about in the Sermon on the Mount? What about all the stuff he's going to be talking about soon as we get forward in the book of Matthew? All the things we're supposed to be doing. I mean, I definitely think we've watered it down in a sense, and we're not living in this type of society, and I think it's, maybe it's kind of a warning, like, if you get to that society, you better, like, not reject me. If it gets to that point, like, you should take it to that place, but just because we're not in a society that kills us if we don't, like, because we're following Jesus doesn't mean that it can't be difficult, and you can apply it to your everyday life because... How many people do you encounter during the day that like hate Christians, or especially like at UCLA, where you might even be afraid to stick up or disagree? We could preach to someone maybe of our friends who isn't a Christian, be like, you know, I kind of want to bring you to church, but then you worry about what they're gonna think, and like that can consume you just as much as a fear of dying. Like it's almost easier. Some people would rather be like, okay, yeah, if it comes down to the line, just take it, it's done, instead of like being judged every day. I mean. So let's vote. How many people would rather preach at UCLA or be eaten by lions? Which one would you like to? I'm just saying, sometimes it's an easier choice to make. Like, if you really love God and it came down to it, and someone's like, if you don't deny Christ, I'm going to kill you, I honestly think I'd be like, fine, kill me. But that's almost an easier choice because I know the scripture, and I'm like, all right, whatever. I've come down to the end of the road. This is it for me. God's going to take me. That's, like, almost an easier, like, black and white than the daily, like, when do I speak up? Who do I talk to? Who do I... 
you know, preach to about Christ? Where do I stand up for the things that I believe in? Yeah, but the method they kill you is, you know, could be really long and important. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like, I just think it's, it's a lifelong commitment, you know, and it's like there's going to be those times, like Peter, where you're not going to be able to have the guts to say anything, and you're going to be afraid. And it's, it's times where you go through temptations and trials and, and you persevere and whatever, and God's going to work with you in your life, your whole life, if, you're, if you really believe and you really want to pursue. And no matter what, His will is going to be done through us eventually. We'll eventually get there. And it's not just like, oh, boom, like let's all be martyrs for Christ because I just accept it. It's like, no, it's a process, just like how Paul talks about with like, you know, there's people that are on spiritual milk and there's people that are on spiritual meat. You know, no matter what, that's why Christ died for us, because we are sinners and because we do screw up and we do mess up, you know. And it's the redemption of that that's supposed to renew our spirit to be stronger and keep moving forward. When the timing's right, we're always going to be faced with something where we're going to have to, you know, confess our belief system with Christ. If someone directly asks you, hey, are you, do you believe in Jesus? Then what are you going to say? And it doesn't mean that it's constant. It doesn't mean that it's, you know, every single day you're going to have to go into a battle zone in a war zone. Okay, look, we can be very thankful that we don't live in the kinds of place right now where standing up for our faith could mean our death. All right? We should be thankful for that. At the same time, we should recognize that whenever the church is persecuted, it explodes. It's the reason that there's going to be more Christians if there aren't already more Christians in China and Asia than there are in America why there's more Christians growing in India than there ever will be here. Because for some reason when the church is persecuted, it just continues to explode. So yeah, I think most of us are thankful we're not living in that place. Maybe we'll live long enough to see America change in a way. I don't know. But the other question still remains. If we're not in that place and we do have the freedom, then what are we doing with it? When he's saying, if you love your father or mother more than me, substitute something else in there. If you love anything more than the Lord, if something else is again in your life that's greater than Him, that takes up more time than serving the Lord and following Him is a set of things He's told us what they are. He laid them out in the Sermon on the Mount. He's reinforcing them. They're not vague things. And if anything in our life is preventing us from those kinds of things, then we're not really following Him. He didn't just expect his followers to believe and kick back and wait for death so we can get into heaven. I don't think that was in his contemplation. His contemplation was that his disciples would be doing certain things. And I'm asking us to consider those things. What are those things, again, that are preventing us from living a life of service the way he expected us to live? Because I know we want to, but for the most part, We've still got our life filled with all the other things. And that means that there's something that we are loving more than Him. He ends chapter 10 like this. He who receives you, receives me. He's going back kind of to the sending out of the twelve. So he's foreshadowed all this stuff. He's told them about how they're to behave even in times of persecution. And now he comes to conclude those instructions about how they're going to be going from town to town. He who receives you receives me. And he who receives me receives the one who sent me. 
Anyone who receives a prophet because he's a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And anyone who receives a righteous man because he is a righteous man will receive a righteous man's reward. He's saying that those people that when you go to and you, they receive you, they're receiving me, that means they're receiving the Father. And if they receive you, they'll get the reward that goes along with it. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of the little ones, because he is my disciple, I tell you the truth, he will certainly not lose his reward. This cup of cold water is kind of an Eastern phrase. It's actually still used to this day. That the least thing you can do when you have a guest, at the very, very, very least thing, is to at least offer them a cup of cold water. That if you did nothing else, if you didn't even give them that, that means you refused them completely, you refused your hospitality. That guests expect even just a cup of cold water would satisfy the requirement that when a guest comes into your home that you offer them something. So that cup of cold water is kind of like the bare societal minimum. Very interesting phrase I want you to hang on to because we're going to come back to it if we ever make it to chapter 25. These little ones, the disciples. Jesus is saying that if you receive these little ones, the disciples, you've received me. Very important to understanding later when Jesus says, if you did this to the least of these, my brothers. So many of us have interpreted that phrase to mean that that means the people who are less fortunate in the world. But in the book of Matthew, whenever Matthew writes these little ones, the least of these, he's actually talking about the disciples. So this theme of receiving the disciples will come back later. Just hold on to it right now for a moment because he's saying if they receive you, presumably what he's saying is they've received the message of salvation. And that concludes chapter 10. Yeah. Can't you just go back to healing people or something? You know? Yeah, in chapter 11, it gets so much nicer. John the Baptist gets executed right away. You know? Yeah, let's, let's have happy church. Where's happy church? Let me, let, me, let me close this off like this. Some of us are still resonating with the imagery of a couple weeks ago of the cost of discipleship. Kind of the image we used was that kind of that vessel. How all of us want to be used by God in, in, in a vessel. When we talk about God fill me up, but the problem is all of us have already filled ourselves up. This theme is continued throughout chapter 10 in a way, whether it's through persecution, whether it's through us preferring even family members, even things that we would think like, how could God not want me to love my family? He does. But if it means that you have to choose family over him, he's saying, choose him. So keep thinking about that vessel and what you've got in your life that we filled it up with voluntarily. I said there's only a couple ways this goes. God either says, you're filled up, can't use you, which I think is the saddest of all things. Sometimes God actually takes the time to empty you out against your will, which is the times in our lives when we go through the hardest moments where we're having to forcefully let go of things, but God is doing that for our own good. Or we can voluntarily sit before God and say, what is it that prevents me from being the kind of servant, the kind of disciple who takes your words seriously? What is it that I have to let go of? Even if I have to stay empty for a while to wait 
to fill up with the things that I should be doing. So let's pray and close. Lord, I'm often reminded when I look at the book of Matthew about how difficult the things that you have to say really are. Times when you told us that persecution will come, trouble will come, and you told us how to deal with it. Lord, give us courage and give us fortitude to do the things you want from us. In moments like this, right now, Lord, your Holy Spirit settles in this room and gives us just a pause of the way that we live our life. And Lord, in our sinful, broken world, as soon as we're done in this room, it's so tempting to just go back to our life, to put these words aside until next week. Lord, don't let us do that. If your Holy Spirit has to grab us this week and shake us to our core, don't let us fall into complacency, Lord. I dare to ask you that you would bring us in places where we're forced to give up the things in our lives that hinder us from being with you, Jesus, that hinder us from following you, that hinder us from taking care of the people who are dying, the people who don't know you yet, the people who need healing, the people who just need a place to sleep, the people who need food or water. Lord, we take care of ourselves so well in this life, sometimes we don't even need you. Bring us back to a place, Lord, where we recognize that this life is about you. Pray this in your name.